0: Hello and welcome back to the AdRace podcast. I'm Fayola Douglas. For season two, episode two, I'm joined by Layla Fatar, founder, CEO and CSO of Platform 13. With more than 25 years proven experience, Layla Fatar has a unique ability to speak entrepreneurial, cultural and corporate fluently, having worked both in senior leadership roles in-house with the likes of Adidas and Diageo and through founding her own platforms and agencies. Layla created Platform 13 in August 2017 to answer challenges and needs faced by the big brands in the ever-changing, swiftly moving world of consumer behaviour, creative innovation and cultural shifts. Welcome. If we start off... um looking at things before you got into the ad industry so how were things for you in school and what made you want to pursue higher education although you've been telling me it wasn't in marketing
1: no it wasn't i my god school i mean i'm 50 this year so i don't know if you want me to go back (laughs) that far um but i went to school um in south africa i do have to say i was raised in apartheid south africa so we were very much segregated Um, So the school that I went to um, Was in my local area um, And um, it was Where we had to go Nothing particular Particularly important about it um, But I think I was Personally surrounded by lots of creativity My mum's a pattern maker My uncles were in a band So I guess for me school wasn't so much The influence as the community was uh, In terms of talent and creativity And I loved it Um, But then, I guess, coming from South Africa as well, there's really no access to um, opportunities, especially at that time. Now it's different. Hopefully it'll continue to get different. Uh, But at the time, it definitely was quite um, difficult to get ahead. Um, For me, education was the only real way out. Um, I had the opportunity to go to university Um, where I did science. Um, Quite logical-minded, so I've got this weird mix of logic and creativity. Um, But I found doing science, probably more for my mother, Uh, first one to go to university and graduate um, in my family, so it was quite important for her. But obviously, and hopefully, like, taught me so much uh, just about things like deadlines, just about things like research, just about things like critical thinking, and I think that's the bit... um, that I took away from university, um, actually, which has helped me today. Uh, So I think it's about transferable information. So
0: when you were at university, did
1: you have an idea about what you wanted to go on and do, like what that career path (laughs) could be, or did it
0: totally switch? Nothing.
1: I had no idea really about this industry. It just was not a viable, credible place from where I'm from um, at all. We always had to go and find the solid good job, you know, the one that wasn't overly creative because you need to be able to have have security in your life. Um, so, for me, I actually was only really introduced to it when I got to London. Um, and I um, have this crazy story about my arrival in London. I had a bald head because I was going through my Sinead O'Connor face. I was one of the only people in the science faculty with Dr. Martin's, or not Dr. Martin's, with, with boots on, biker boots on, that we were, I thought it was Dr. Martin's, but wasn't, um, and a shaved head. Um, and my chancellor laughed at me as he tapped me with my degree. So came to London and my main thing was um, I didn't know anyone. I had 200 pounds. Um, I knew I wanted to be here because this is where I saw from outside a place where um, being different was embraced, where people mixed together, um, where art and culture and music um, and all these really inaccessible places for me um, and what I saw from what I was interested in was, came to life and was celebrated. Um, so I came to South Africa, uh, came to London, and I walked past a hairdressing salon And in my head, I was like, great, I can meet people and I can have my head head shaved for free. Um, So I walked backwards and forwards. The phone was ringing, phone was ringing, phone was ringing. Um, So I walked back in and I was like, you must be losing business because your phone's been ringing and I've walked backwards and forwards. But I was talking to Anthony Mascolo, who is one of the brothers who owns Tony and Guy Hairdressing. And I had no idea who they were. (laughs) He gave me a job on the spot as his receptionist um, in his new school that was opening in central London, in Oxford Street, and that's where I started my career as a receptionist. So after a year, I was like, you're wasting me down yeah. here, what do you do upstairs? <laughs> and it was where they did PR, where he did all the shows from, where they did all the communications from, and I'm like, I wanna, what is that, you know? Yeah. And so started off literally as, as his runner, as his coffee girl, as the department runner, and this is all before the internet. So I was out there faxing, yeah. I was out there franking, <laughs> uh putting stuff in the post, like cutting our transparencies. I loved it. Um and so that's where I really found out about this business that we're in, um, of advertising communications and marketing. So really from the ground up.
0: <laughs> and how was that transition so from South Africa to being here in London, being in this totally different environment, I'm guessing you made a whole load of friends. Being in a, the hair industry as yeah, well, like yeah. how was how was that time for you?
1: It was amazing because for me, it was the first time um, I could see people mixing. Actually, the first first I just remember the first thing I thought on the train from Heathrow to to Earl's Court was everyone's got shoes on. Like that was my first thought. I was like, everyone's got coats on. Because it was really unusual for me to see that everyone kind of had a bit of everything. You know what I mean? That was quite, quite new for me. Um, it was also the first time I saw um, a young black guy and an older white woman actually having a laugh together at the bus stop. I loved it. I was like, this is where I belong. <laughs> um, you know, and I really, really enjoyed um learning about new things finding out about new people and just mixing for the first time with quite a lot of different types of people that we didn't have access to in south africa and that was awesome for me i loved it so that was my first and i still feel that way today to be honest about london i still am like wow it still has that feeling for me i, I, I can't think of anywhere else I'd, I'd want to be
0: so taking that leap from kind of getting your first start in london um, all the way to being a founder. <laughs> so you uh, started up Spin Publicity, yes. that then went on to be known as Spin Agency London. Yeah. Um, tell me about kind of what that concept was oh. for, to starting that that business. That business.
1: Okay. So while I was a Tony guy, and this is one step back again, is I read science fiction. I still do today. I'm a huge fan of uh, William Gibson, and he at the time when I was still in South Africa, coined, um, I read a book called Neuromancer. And Neuromancer was about people jacking in their brains, science fiction, to computers and talking to each other. (laughs) This is pre-internet. So he actually coined the term cyberspace. So while I was a Tony guy, the internet arrived. And I was like, oh my God, it's, happening. <laughs> it's here, it's yeah. happening. So I said, I was like, I want to have the computer with email. I was so excited about this new world because um, in my mind I was like, what? you know, it was a, it was a really big thing. So it was really that time where I was absolutely thinking about this new world that was kind of opening up really really early as you can imagine i'm also super opportunistic where i come from i'm very much about grabbing the opportunity the same as walking into the hairdressing salon so even while i was a tony and guy i was already like how do we create an in-house agency so i created an in-house agency to um, send out the hairdressers to do fashion shoots and all sorts of things um to be able to some very much innovative in that way of thinking and thinking outside of just the traditional category that that might be in because that got us into fashion and got us into other places as well, as well as on top of everything else they were doing as well. So, after five years, I was like, either I'm going to marry into the Italian family, who I adore and love, but no. um, Because that was the only way to go further than where I was um, at the time. And um, I decided to start the first... (laughs) Online fashion marketing company in London called Generation Net, and this was super early, and this was online only. Um, but my first client was a company and a magazine called Scene Magazine, which you're too young to know, but it was like a bit of a early. It was it was a bit on the lines of like dazed and confused and these yeah. magazines. They wanted to transfer online from a print publication. Super early. This is oh. like before. Anything and so I was brought in uh, to help them. It never got off, I never got there, yeah, but I learned a lot about just what it was on the back end. And then I got my first client, which was a sneaker company called Acupuncture Um, again, huge in the 90s, had a big acupuncture sign in it, very London, very guerrilla marketing. Um, So I learned everything I knew from them on how to make a lot of noise under underground undercover so brought this kind of traditional this underground and this online world together and re re rebranded into spin because for me that was a bit of a take on spin doctor which at the time was a huge thing and was very much around um, creating this kind of hybrid way of communicating in a non-traditional way for brands in the fashion industry mostly so that area, Spin, and then Publicity, and then into Spin Agency, was a 10-year run um, and worked on many, many, many incredible sort of, like, fashion, music, and art. Collaborations, projects, brands in that space at the time, but very early integrating all these different things together. Um, and it was, you know, it was was pretty successful for what it was. <laughs> um, but I winged it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, that's it, yeah.
0: At the time, I guess, like, People would see like PR marketing, the media industry as being a bit of a boys' club. So how was it for you kind of navigating that space as a, a twenty six year old female founder?
1: I mean, I embraced that, absolutely. We were really happy to be the outcast and you know, not the outcast, but definitely the ones that looked different, um, sounded different, um, was different and We embraced that. My team was extremely diverse, um, and that's by default. Anything to do with me, that's by default. It's where I come from. It's one of the most important things for me, um, is to make sure that there's a bit of a a level playing field, even if it's harder, the job's harder, because um, you need to be able to know how to navigate things, but that's just how it needs to be. Um, so we always looked really, really different and we always sounded really, really different and we loved it, actually. Uh, we embraced it, we ran with it um, and, you know, it, it made sure that we were definitely successful in what we were doing within our space but it was very much this kind of fashion, music, art area. Um, not so much the big, the big consumer goods or anything like that at all. So that's what it was. So
0: besides working with... Acub- Acubundia. Acubundia. Yeah. So across,
1: yeah. across those years, we worked yeah. with Vice, we well, yeah, worked was- with Carhartt, we worked with, I mean, the list goes so, on. Yeah. Any brand or anything that was kind of popping at that time, Yeah. Bob. Store in West London was one of our clients. Um, multiple, multiple, multiple brands, but you can check my LinkedIn for that list. Yeah. <laughs> It's too long to go through 10 years, a long, long, long time.
0: So um, do you have any really powerful memories from that time of, like, working in London or anything that's really kind of stuck with you? So
1: I think it was probably a lot of the things that people think about now, we were just doing at the time because we, you know, we were working in, in, in very sort of early creative industry, whatever you want to call it, right? So we would do, we did... Um, what we called a flash store, you might call a pop-up store, Uh, collaborations we did because we needed to, together with our friends, find new audiences. You know, we did fly posting because we couldn't afford to do media buys. Um, So for us, it was really trying to find ways um, to... To, to make noise around things. And that's really exciting. and still exciting for me today is going, how can you do it in a way that feels right for who you're trying to talk to in their universe in the way they want to receive it? That hasn't changed in the almost 30 years of my career. So um, I feel like those things really stand out to me in terms of what we were trying to do back then, which now just feels like, the norm but actually at that time was really 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 different we were dropped we were doing this one campaign for um for a, a clothing brand that does not it doesn't even exist today and we dropped all these little statues all over the country in manchester other places so they get stolen so they get taken <laughs> um we did um we worked with this acupuncture as well on a wrestling party a wrestling party <laughs> Everybody was wrestling, including the people who came. It was huge. It got into the NME. It was so outrageous. So, you know, those are the things. But th- those are secrets I'll take, uh, <laughs> I'll
0: take with it me. It sounds like there's maybe a bit more red tape
1: now, yeah, a bit more, more, more sign-off. A bit more sign-off, a <laughs> bit more brand guidelines. But at the time, we were just um, all trying to find different ways to do things, and it was really exciting. And, it, and you know, I still feel like people can do that today. Um Within certain guardrails, uh, but at the time it felt it felt freeing to be honest. So yeah, yeah it was great.
0: So now we're going to talk about you living the dream, <laughs> as I would say, being the client. Uh, so you've worked for Diageo and Adidas. Yes. How
1: was it stepping into that role of of being the client, being on the other side of things? Wow, it was a bit of a shock to be honest, um, especially coming out of a ten-year company. And although Tony and Guy was also, it was a family-run business, so quite different to a corporate structure. Um, and my first job at Adidas was quite a culture shock for me, to be honest. I'd moved out to Germany um, to, I was the global director uh, of PR, social, and content um, for originals, um, but I could also see the opportunity and why I was brought in as well, just because it's just a fresh perspective um, on stuff, especially for this really cultural brand or wanting to be a culture culturally relevant brand. Um, so, But it was hard because I'm not someone who can't find a solution to something. This is the problem. So you have this idea of corporate and brands being process-driven, that's why they're successful, and then you have a big mouth like me coming and going, but can't we do that, and can't we do that, and surely we can do that, and yes, we're going to do that. Um, But hopefully that's helpful um, as well to be able to have um, a a different view on how things could and should be done. But, yeah, it was tough. It's different being a client. You have different priorities in the day. Um, and you have a lot of internal stuff that you've got to do that unless you've been inside, you really have no idea (laughs) what that could be. Um, And so there's pros and cons to both. But, yeah, it was a bit difficult um, having someone to report into after being my own boss for a long, long, long time. That was probably the difficult one. And also this, as I said, quite opportunistic, so going um, and questioning and challenging um, stuff that was done in a certain way for a long, long time, but now hope, hopefully the work the work spoke for itself so um yeah hopefully that's okay but yeah tough
0: and how did your experiences differ at adidas versus diageo because i know it's like one was a global position yeah. um one was a very european focused role yeah. did that have a effect on kind of what yeah. you were doing on a daily basis
1: yeah so they were quite different roles so first of all at adidas i was global director of pr social and content um Initially, it was just PR, but I was like, we need social in my team because communication's out. Yes. So had to integrate um, a team that was sitting in a different country, in a different department, into my team. had to rebuild and reconnect um, all the connections together. I also come from a place where um, I um, cross... Department. So for me, PR, communications, anything like that is the voice of the actual brand. So I need to know about all the different parts, whereas yeah. generally it's quite siloed and quite a bolt-on. So it was a lot of that happening internally to try and make sure that people understood that PR and communications is strategic. And that was a hard job to do, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, And then at Diageo, which was interesting, first of all, I was on the leadership team, which was a new position for me to be in um, and different. And we created a whole new department um, at Diageo. So although it was two different corporate structures, actually, they were quite different jobs that had to be done with inside to do the culturally relevant work externally. And also one is sportswear and one is FMCG. So I'd worked in fashion, music and art. I knew the rules of engagement with fashion and, you know, originals, sportswear, streetwear. Didn't really know the rules of engagement with FMCG and especially booze because there are lots of correctly, correctly responsibility, rules and regulations, uh, stuff that if you've been working in a certain category for a long time, you kind of know what those are. So I had to really um, lean into the legal department and all these other areas within uh, Diageo that I'd never had, had to have a think about before. And that was a really amazing learning experience. So the same but different. Um, if that if that works. By the time I got to Diageo, though, I had had an experience of corporate, so a bit of understanding, but still um, had to learn a lot more about how to navigate within a structure that was so business orientated, and learned a lot there. Uh, as I said, because I was on the leadership team, you also get a big a bit of a bigger overview of the organization, what it needs, how it works, and how to make it work differently, better, especially because we're creating a completely new department that was across the portfolio of brands, not just set within one brand. So although it was global and one business unit, this was portfolio and Europe, which is made up of 50 countries, by the way. So not so different in terms of having to have multiple hats and understand the nuances of culture, be it However many countries, however many countries, not so much, not not so different in terms of way of thinking, but yeah, it was great.
0: So coming from agency side, we obviously see that there might be a project that is coming out of the UK, and then you know, so something similar, but talking to the local market will yeah. be in in Germany. How was that experience for you? Kind of having that global overview of. Um, what a brand like Diageo was putting out there and, and do you think that these brands strike the right, right balance between local and and global when kind of looking at their strategy.
1: So for me, because I come from um, a culture-led point of view, it's always going to be what's happening across communities and not vertically in the country. That's always been how I've worked. So I've always looked at what's happening in the world to understand what impacts communities, but then I may activate it in the local way um, because that makes sense for the culture of that country. So it's always, I think, I think it's never been so hard for me to differentiate between global and local because I've always thought that way and I've always yeah. worked that way, whether it be focused in on UK, Europe or global, the communities cross cultures. Um, so if you're in, if the community is LGBTQI plus, it's not, it's LGBTQI plus yeah. community. But obviously, there are specific policies, politics, and cultural issues that happen in a country. That means it's, there may be a different effect, a different impact that you need to think about. Even though the community is one around the world, that's how I think. That's why the work that we do is culture led, not category led, not even. It's connected to brand because brand is their brand is pulled in, but it's culture-led, and, and that's the important part. And that's the differentiator uh, between what I think are other agencies and the gap I saw when I was in-house. I was like, they missing the, <laughs> the cultural insights uh, to make creativity work globally and locally, to make social work, to make other things work. Um, as we can see, the amount of problems you see by people not understanding what's happening culturally because it's all politics and technology that makes the difference. But people just don't see how that impacts people's points of view on what they're putting out or how they work and what they're activating. It's a, it's it's affected through the lens of how people are feeling on the ground. And that's really important. So I don't think that answered yes, your question.
0: And yes, it, it brings me nicely on to the, the, the next one, really, which is I think that brands often know very quickly when they've got it wrong but how do you communicate to brands that um, it's important to really embed themselves within the cultures that they want to show up in the elements of culture they want to show up in I mean
1: for me personally I have proven experience so I will show them the case studies and I'll go this is what can happen if you just do it respectfully and in the right way but I think The the, the problem that people have is there's such a lack of understanding of what it actually means that people assume that if you are making noise, that means something. Actually, for me, if a brand is culturally relevant, it means that whoever they're trying to talk to is talking about them and buying them, (laughs) even when there's no paid campaign connected to it. That's different because you're impacting people. You're impacted in positive, doesn't have to be worthy, can be positive um, in, in, in many, 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 many forms. So for me, I think that's where the differentiator happens um, and where people will only see that is when you get the soft metrics, when people are talking about you positively online without you prompting them, without there being a competition, without there being some way for them to win something or or anything. They're just talking about how awesome you are because you're doing stuff that's impacting people. That for me is cultural relevance, but there isn't an industry standard metric uh, for that. So for me, I take it as to show people they're doing well, is showing them the hard metrics the video views, all the rest of the KPIs, but also the soft metrics, what the community has said about them, what it's meant to them, and I will bring people in to explain to them what, what that's meant. And so that's the hard bit, is because people will just run to the numbers, but it's the nuances, they'll run to the reach, but it's what people are talking about, that's the difference in terms of success. So that's when you know someone's doing something well, when you're getting the feedback, um, probably online mostly, but... Um, but also within the communities, there's a knowledge of what this brand is doing that's adding value to them. Um, and that's that's always going to be positive. And that's how people are going to buy your stuff. Like at the end of the day, it's about consuming. That's what I learned at Diageo. I was like, you can do all this stuff here, marketing, what have you. But if people are not buying your stuff, you know, it's not really working. They've got to be. And I guess it's what my accountant said to me the first time I opened Spin, he was like, you're not in business until someone's paying for your services. And that's it, you know. Otherwise, it's just a lovely idea. <laughs> and um, that's what people should take away from, from this from this thing. You're not in business until someone's paying for your services.
0: So, looking back, obviously, at your time at Adidas and, and Diageo, have you been left as a lifelong Adidas fan? Have you got, like, a whole <laughs> wardrobe full of Adidas trainers and... <laughs> Have you got a favourite Diageo uh, brand, um, yeah. a tipple that you like?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I was lucky in a way because I was the PR, right? <laughs> 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 so I've got lots and lots of amazing sneakers. Um, Is it like limited edition? It's, it's, there's a one. mix There's a mix of different ones, but I was always not the sample size. So they'd have to make up a size of my really small size forefoot. But yes, I have quite a few edits but I was also in sneakers for a long time before. Yeah. That even so, I've got a very wide range um, of which Adidas is one. um, All obviously, I've just got a lot of a lot of sneakers. (laughs) That's the thing. That's I don't know part of my culture, I guess, and my community. Um, And then from Diageo, um, I like a gin. I like a Gordon's. To be honest, I'm good. I'm there. Um, And I do. I do. I do. But I'm not a bit. I'm not a huge drinker. So it's now and then. But but generally, I will go for. Um yeah, a Gordon's gin. I'm quite yeah. happy with that. Yeah.
0: That is one thing they do say I know around like drinks brands, mm. once they get somebody in, then you become like a recurring customer. Yeah. So yeah. Like,
1: it was really interesting at Diageo because if you think about that particular category, I mean Diageo are the biggest and one of the biggest leaders in the category because they've got all the distribution. So you know, sometimes if you go into a pub and go, I want a gin and tonic, guess what gin that is? It's <laughs> I want a vodka and coke. Guess what vodka that is? It's Menoff. These are all the brands because they are very, very, very clever uh, people at Diageo for sure. They know how to, how, to, how to make sure the distribution is wide and, and, and they're getting what they need to get. So I learned a lot there. We're flying through
0: the years now, (laughs) but tell me about 2017 and um, what led you to founding Platform 13. 13.
1: Okay, so um, when I was in-house, one thing that I had to do was I realised quite quickly there was a gap for someone like with my experience, which is a bit weird and all over the shop, right? So um, actually when I was in-house, I didn't really use any of the rostered agencies, um, I actually used the same network that I use today, that I used to my own company and Spin. Um, and so I had to really work closely with internal processes and departments to be able to do that because I felt much more comfortable. I had an agency for 10 years, so for me, I felt much more comfortable working with um, the network that I had. Um, the network was really different to the agencies and the people within those agencies. They looked different. They were different. Remember, we were talking about Um, diverse by default, all this network I'd I'd had from spin, I wanted to work with them even within these bigger companies. So that was um, really important for me um, when taking on the jobs um, that that I was allowed to do that. So coming out of um, five years then of being brand side and client side, I was like, there is an opportunity here for a new type of company. Um, we don't want to be called an agency because we're not, although we can work that way, but it is very much a platform um, where I curate people dependent on the project, the brand, the category, the community, the culture. Because for me, lived experience and professional experience is where the informa- where you know, where it becomes more cultural. So those are the people I curate, which is this network that I have. Um, uh, you know, 25-year-old network. It's pretty deep. It's pretty wide. It's pretty vast. It, keeps growing. it yeah. keeps growing because at the end of the day, someone knows someone about someone who can do this and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's, that's the unique bit. And I understood that the industry that we were in that i was in didn't have that access to this pool of talent again coming back from where i grew up there's all this talent out there that don't get a look in there's no access i felt like that was something that i wanted to do it felt like something that i could do um and i wanted to just do it in a different way um than what was out there at the moment and that's what i identified when being in house so started platform 13 in 2017 um because actually you know Everyone thinks that I started coming out of corporate. Actually, I had a ten-year company before that, so it was just a bit of a full circle for me uh, to come out and actually do something that I felt brands and still feel brands and the industry needs, um, and that's what, it, that's, what was, that's what was born in so 2017. Like
0: you had you got a bit of intel from the inside I got a bit of intel. <laughs> and then you came back out. <laughs> I mean, I know it's
1: missing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so I'll do that.
0: <laughs> so, so how was it? Um, how was that transition? Being able now to work with lots of different brands, like from obviously focusing on Adidas and focusing on Diageo to now being able to work with a whole host of brands that you find exciting and want to work with, how how was it being able to, I guess, unleash your creativity again? I
1: mean, it's awesome, right? So because we curate the project teams according to lived experience community, culture, the category we also can work across categories, so you know we've done stuff for Jaguar Land Rover's innovation department, we've done stuff for Bumble we've done stuff for Pinterest, we've done stuff for sneakers, you know and we can do that because we can curate the teams according to that and that makes a really big difference, Um, also within our team it's really important this idea of access, so for me there's always a mix of people who are super experienced and people who are merging and wanting to come into the industry. There's also lots of creative talent that don't get a look in. Um, So all these things are part of the platform, um, but I'm by no means a talent person. You know, these are projects that we lead and we build our team accordingly Um, versus passing on any briefs to anyone else, um, because that is my business. And I really love it. Um, I'm very, very hands on. Um, I enjoy it. I still enjoy it to today. Um, And I guess now, almost 30 years later, I understand what my skill is. Um, And it's intangible. It's the ability to know what resonates for brands. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Everyone's like, "How do you do that?" I'm like, "I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. It's just like something that, if I think about my body of work, is the same thing." All the way through and have only really started to be able to articulate what that is. <laughs> now, yeah. almost 30 years later, I'm like, oh, that's the red thread that's gone through. Because everyone's like, How do you do it? And what are you doing? And I'm just like, it's not that I sit there and I go, every Monday I'm gonna read these five blogs. It's not like that. It's yeah. just an amalgamation of stuff that's happening and the ability to kind of analyze quickly and read what's going on to know what's right or what people shouldn't be doing or it's quite intangible. It's a bit weird. I don't know. I always say don't that
0: ask, like, yeah. there's some things that always feel. Like we it takes a while sometimes to identify it, but there'll be things that maybe feel like they come natural to you, and to so somebody else, they they don't know how you're figuring it out. But to your you, it's like it that's feels just, right. Like that how it's sense. always
1: done, it and it's it's consistent it's over thirty years. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, maybe there's something in it. Not sure. So, so that's a difficult well,
0: bit. All other businesses would, of course, be missing having you there. <laughs> are, are there any other agencies or platforms that you feel are operating in a similar way to you? Or is, is how you're working, and it sounds really quite unique?
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was unique then. I actually feel like quite a lot of big agencies um, and other um, companies even similar to mine um, are doing it because I feel like, come pandemic when everything fell down and big companies were laying off stuff, I mean, we were set up to go. You know, I've had a global remote network of creatives. I've already got the processes in order. I already know how to switch and flip. I can pull on loads of different insights from different places. We were set up. So for us, um, it just showed the flaws in how... Big agencies and the challenges they might have not being so agile and nimble and different and, you know, the ability to kind of just flex quite quickly as to what's happening in the world. That's not different how I treat my brands. That's culture that happens in the world. Now, it can impact your business whether you're a brand, whether you're an agency, whatever. You've got to read what's happening and then find the solution for it so i think now probably quite a lot of people are doing it that way and i'm glad because hopefully it's just opening the industry out a bit more you know i'm all about collaboration i'm just like there's enough for all of us to eat here uh, we're not competitive we don't want to be competitive we have a different offer and that's okay there's a role for everyone you know so i think um hopefully you know it will open up the industry a bit more as you start to have Even bigger agencies and bigger companies going, okay, maybe there's a way to bring in different networks of people that we might not have been able to or haven't haven't thought of working with before. Because I think before um, they were quite set up in like the creative department, the career director, the career, you know, all of this, which is fine, but it was very closed into whoever was working within that actual team when actually the inputs externally, especially raw input, raw talent, is so much more exciting um, because it's coming straight from experimentation, innovation. Yeah, it's great. So hopefully that's just the way it's going to go forward. That would be great.
0: So what have been some of your defining moments for Platform 13 over the past few years? So could be like your proudest moments or a moment when
1: you're like you know we've made it we've done like (laughs) I think working yeah I think surviving 2020 um and not having to furlough anyone not to lay off anyone and being able to really flex and actually and actually know that the system is correct even though at the time of 2017 it felt really different to what anyone else was doing so That was great. Um, Incredible projects. Um, The one I talk about the most is um, the Guinness project that we did um, for the Caribbean community. Uh, For me, just from a community point of view, you know, we got comments like this is a historical moment for Guinness. They finally see that black people drink them. These are soft metrics that you're not going to be able to um, get from, um, you know the KPIs set on the video views, even though we smashed that out the window and smashed the benchmark as well, because it's connected into culture. So that was really, you know, an an, an incredible moment for us. Um, Loads and loads and loads of other projects. Actually, we're really lucky in that brands come to us because they want that different point of view. So everything we do feels like it doesn't look like anything else, which is great. And so uh, team is fantastic. Um, always have amazing people who are so passionate about the way we're trying to do things. I think if you work at Platform 13 or even with me, like there's there's a personality type that that enjoys challenging the status quo, wants to do that, has has the license for me to do that in a way that feels professional and mutually beneficial for everyone. So I think it's, you know being able to create this new way of working, finding people who love it, who work there, who get it, um, and pushing it out and it being... We're still here six years later through a pandemic, you know. I think that's OK. <laughs> and
0: you, of course, deliver work globally. Yes. Does that come with its own oh,
1: challenges? Oh, I mean, as you can imagine. <laughs> so a couple of ones jumped to mind was we did the uh, Pride film for Pinterest. Um, in a pandemic, six countries... My director, Molly Mills, is in L.A. So if you know anything about L.A., there's a two-day time-lapse because of the timings, and we had six productions in six different countries, and we pulled that all together, edited everything uh, to pull out, so that was huge in terms of country. But we're lucky, again, because of the network, we have people on the ground who are platform 13 people, so we'll pull in different people, you know, we did a piece for Dr Martin's and we had did a big consumer segmentation for them, uh, you know, from Korea to Japan to wherever, done stuff in China. Done, but the network enables us to be able to have people on the ground. So it doesn't really feel so hard, um, but I guess that's how it have always worked. That's what I'm trying to say, like, these things are different because i come from a culture-led point of view with communities that span not only the country that you, and so it's quite easy for us to work globally. Um, and we enjoy it because it also means that we have different viewpoints uh, come in all the time, um, and I really love learning new things all the time. So yeah, not so hard for, not so hard to do if you have this amazing network that we have.
0: So when it came to setting up Platform Thirteen, mm. you of course decided to um, make London its home. Yes. And why did you kind of come to that decision, and do you think that London is a great place for people to, to grow businesses, and especially? work within the advertising and marketing industry, like those opportunities.
1: I've been really lucky to travel a lot um, through my entire career to different cities. London for me feels like my home city for all the reasons I talked about coming in from South Africa. So it's always going to have that that place for me Uh, my child is born here uh, my husband's from here so this is really my home city I feel I've been here almost 30 years now so it really does feel like my home even though I still feel like a bit of an outsider coming in because I'm not born here Um, but I do feel like this is the place where I can be myself it raised me um, it gave me opportunity and and I love it actually Um, still today if I go to any other city it doesn't quite match up for me. Maybe, maybe Barcelona though. <laughs> uh, that's the one for In the later. Well. In the sun by the sea, but still a city. <laughs> I could, but still accessible to London. Yeah, that's definitely going to be the retirement uh, <laughs> half and half situation. Hopefully, but we'll see. We'll see.
0: Platform thirteen is entering a new era. It is. So, what does that mean to
1: you? So, up until now, um, we have been focused on. Um, projects that are external-facing, so to consumers, to communities, to fans, creating, um, I guess, what you would call uh, sort of through-the-line communication, so if it's an out-of-home campaign, to a content series, to a TikTok se- activity, to an in-real-life, whatever, so external-facing to the consumer for the brand. Um, this year has been tra- quite a transformational year for me. Um, I turned 50. Um, and I also realized that actually what's needed to do culturally relevant work is to be able to support the brands in setting themselves up internally to do culturally relevant work. And then I remembered that I did it for five years. (laughs) So we have put together a new offer for brands and organizations to share my experience in-house, to be able to set it up change all those processes, update, tweak the playbooks, whatever, to do work that has cultural relevance at the heart of it. Because we know, if you look at, like, everything that happens that has a bit of a flag or is it successful, if you look at the Barbie movie, that's a cultural plan.
0: Yeah. If you
1: look at Bud Light and Dylan, that's a not-cultural plan. Yeah. If you look at, and that's what, You need to be set... Your organisation needs to be set up in order to be able to do that well, not be worried about cancel culture and be scared to do anything, um, but also not to miss growth opportunities as well. So it's a way to shift cultural relevance from only a marketing nice to have, which is what we do already, but to also make it a business growth driver, which means that internally things need to shift a little bit. And I know that because I have the stripes for it, literally. Um at both Adidas and Diageo. And it's worked out pretty well for the projects that we did when I was there and had to change um, some stuff internally. So let's see how it goes. But I feel like hopefully that is a a value add that I can bring to the industry uh, and to brands and organisations who want to do work that's culturally relevant. Um, And that's it. So so let's see. (laughs)
0: So thinking of things from a consumer perspective, why do you think that brands championing cultural relevance... And really works.
1: Um, because it's it understands what they need. A culturally relevant brand for me um, is about finding a role for that brand in the world today. So whereas before it was very much about this is the brand, this is what we want to say about ourselves yeah. all the time. Now, in a world of fragmentation of media, of ad fatigue, um, of you know, sustainability, people buying less. Like, there has to be a really clear role for that brand or that product or that service in someone else's life. So that's when they're going to buy you, you're going to impact them, when you understand what that role is, instead of going, it's all about the craft of creativity. Actually, it's about the role you need to play in that in that consumer's life. Once you understand that, the creativity falls out of that because you really understand uh, the insights of how it's going to impact that person, or that community, or those brand fans, in the right way. In order to do that, you need to make sure that the people coming up with the ideas, coming up with the insights, have that intersection of lived experience and professional experience. And those are the—that's the network we keep on talking about. So yeah. this is kind of how we've always worked. And if you look at, as I said, the body of work, my my body of work, um, there's been projects and brands that have done that and have done that well so i think hopefully there's a red thread that goes through it but we can see the evidence is overwhelming um that a culturally relevant brand connects and impacts people in a positive way and they therefore engage you can find new and attract new audiences but at the same time they'll probably buy your product if it's if that's where they're going to spend their care i think that's a measure of success
0: um it makes sense to me now, like, with the with the Guinness work, it's like there was that moment when you feel like, oh, Guinness knows we exist. Oh, like, Guinness, Guinness like, oh, I see, I, I see you. I
1: see you. I see you. see your yeah. and, and you've been You're part
0: of our... Yeah. Yeah, you're part but, of our community. But
1: before that, rugby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened to this community out here that buys your products that you've been expect- exporting to since the 1820s? Guinness punch is as much a part of culture yeah. as a pint. So, you know, imagine that whole community you haven't been speaking to for a long time. So that's growth opportunity, right? Yeah. That's a culturally-led strategy. And so that's why I'm saying it's not instead of a brand strategy. It actually is complementary to a brand strategy. It pulls it all together to make sure out in the world what's important Your brand is showing up in the right way, in the places that these people want to see. It's a bit like what we are talking about with Spin. You know, we did fly posting because it needed to be in front of our community and they were walking around passing it on the street. It's where they are. It's not necessarily only where the brand thinks it needs to be. That's this whole place of, like, be where your audience is. That's really what it comes down to. None of this is rocket science um, at all. It's just thinking about it from a culture point of view versus a brand point of view and making sure that that brand has a role to play and that it's done in the right way for the audience. It's trying to talk to. Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> it's simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now,
0: kind of thinking about the the projects um, that you work on, kind of what projects keep you motivated and make you excited? Is it having a client that comes to you with a really open mindset or...? Um Thinking about something specific.
1: Yeah, so I think it's probably a mix of a really big challenge. I love a big challenge. I love a hard job to do. I love a complex thing to unpack. Um, but then also a client, so the the, the actual brief being quite, quite a difficult one, <laughs> love that. But also a with that, a client who understands they come to me for a reason and that it may not be... Uh, it may challenge how they think, but they 've come for a reason, so that open mind you 're right about it, and understanding that i don 't know everything, but they don 't know everything as well and so it 's really finding like minded people who want to um, try and do things in a different but understanding that they might they might not know have the answers and that 's okay, but also a really really difficult brief.
0: Want, I don't know. You want the
1: hard work. I, 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 want, I want the hard work. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I think, I think it's because the satisfaction you get out of it when you simplify it down and make sure that it's really easy to activate against is actually really satisfying. It's really satisfying. Or You find that nugget of gold that changes everything and makes it really special and makes impact to communities of people. That's yeah. really important as well. So, yeah. Those two things. <laughs> so you Quite are... hard to find that combination, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you are
0: quite hands-on. So you're the founder, CEO, but also the CSO. Yeah. Does that still mean you like to get really involved with delivering campaigns? So involved.
1: <laughs> so involved. You know, but it's also, I love what I do. I love what I do. I think as well, you know, if you're in, in, in if you're client-side as well, at some point you are quite far away from the actual work as you go up the ladder, right? Yeah. So that would, was always going to be a bit, of a bit of a blocker for me uh, in terms of staying in corporate for a long time. Some people are excellent at that. Um, I'm actually really good at delivering the work, and I love it. So absolutely involved, um, but I have, also have a great team around me as well. So a bit of both, but I definitely never want to be too far away from the work, and it's also representative of my brand, um, and that's really important to me as well. I want to make sure that we are putting out the best that we can possibly do, um, and I have a really, really, really quite quite high standard of what I would expect to see coming out of the business that, you know, I've I've grown. So, yeah, quite involved. But I love it too.
0: And now we're going to talk a bit about diversity and inclusion. I think that it's it been something we've been talking about this whole conversation yes, because it's really kind of part of your yeah, life and embedded yeah. in everything that you do. But um, do you feel like conversations around race have changed since you started your career? Of course, they've probably changed a lot for you personally from apartheid yeah. South Africa, but since you started your career here in London, do you feel like things have changed a lot?
1: I mean, it has changed since 2020 a lot. Um, still, for me, more talk than action. Unfortunately, Um, I still think people will go towards um, within our industry, go towards people they're more comfortable with. And that's where you're going to really lose because you're going to not be able to understand different points of view. People will go where they're comfortable. I think everyone tried really hard in 2020, but it does feel like it's been deprioritized. And I also feel like if people within our industry want to create work that's representative. The input matters more than the output because the input needs to have the diversity there, not only in the final output. So that for me is where my focus has always been. Um, The input's really important. So how
0: does diversity and inclusion function in your agency? I know you always said it's really important for you to have a very diverse team, and that was kind of the default. It's the
1: default. There isn't even a, we're going to do diversity. It is literally a default. Yeah. Um, Because I'm very much about diversity of thought. Um, So I'm like, if someone's the same as me, how boring is that? You know what I mean? What the hell is that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. But it it is a bit like that, where you go, how will our... How can you have the same way of thinking, the same yeah. reference points, and then and think you're going to make work that looks different? Of course, that's never going to work. So I really enjoy diverse voices around me, diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds, and even a really good debate about something. Yeah, I'm there for it. Um, so for me, that. That is by default, um, always has been. And even within my teams in-house, I made sure that my teams, even when I was in-house, brought in people, made sure there was diversity of thought as much as I could within the headcounts and the, uh, you know, the processes that need to be done, but also then worked with partners, my network, that were all already diverse as well, to make sure that we're bringing that new ways of thinking into, into even big corporate structures um, outside of the procurement gatekeeping area (laughs) so I know you
0: make time for like thought leadership and speaker opportunities how important is it to you to be part of driving that conversation around diversity and inclusion
1: I think as with anything lived experience is lived experience and hopefully that is something that I can also give myself as well so um, whenever I decide on a speaker opportunity or I guess lecturing or an opportunity to comment, it always has to add value to the people I'm talking to. And I tend to go towards, um, like, universities or places where there is a diverse group of people that may not have access or may not have um, someone within their family or their community who's been down this road. It's a really, really... It's a really lonely road if you don't have anyone who even understands what you're talking about. Literally been there. So, you know, I make sure um, to be able to be that person if anyone needs, but it's got to be valuable to them. I don't need to listen to myself talking about stuff again. It's got to be practical. It's got to, you know, make... Make a difference um, and, and that 's really important to me in deciding in deciding that, so as long as people want to hear from me and it 's the right thing to do i 'll do that, but definitely don 't need to just be sitting there talking about myself again yeah you're part of
0: DNAD and you were saying you work across like a few different things that yeah. they they 're involved with. do you think it 's important for creatives to be part of these types of groups and associations, and I guess immerse themselves a bit more in the wider Ad industry, a lot of people yeah. are maybe quite closed off within their agency. Gives them yeah.
1: opportunities. I think so. I mean, I think with DNA what's interesting. So, um, I work with Shift more, but I have been um, done keynotes at the actual festival. Um, in fact, I did part one and part two of a cultural state of mind uh one in 2018 and one this the part two this year as well um and also have been a judge uh a number of times across their new blood um admission, ad, 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 admissions admissions that's the right word submissions um but actually uh, last year we were called into support on DNAD Shift, which is super exciting. Um, it is a night school uh, for people who haven't had the chance to go to university or haven't finished their course or haven't um, done it but want to access the industry. Um, and it, we actually came up with the comm strategy and the new platform called Shift Creativity um, around that, which we launched this year at DNAD Festival. Um, but it is amazing because it brings Um, And creates night schools in cities like London, New York, Berlin and Hamburg together in Germany. Um, But also in Sydney and also now in Sao Paulo. Um, And of course each of these different cities have their own issues around diversity in the industry and inclusion. So it really is a way for people who have never had access before to actually get into the industry Work on some briefs, learn how to do things like strategy, learn how to do creative, learn how to do that. And actually, all they need for entry is the thing that makes them creative. So it could be a poem, it could be a music video you shot with your mates, it could be um, whatever. It's just a way for raw talent to be able to create and take that talent and create a career in the industry that they've never really had access into for a long time. So I think it's super important not only for d and the creatives in the actual current industry, but for them to also support these new people coming in um, in in as many ways as they actually can, by giving them jobs, usually. So um, find out about the showcases and stuff, which happens at the end of every night school in each city, where people from different agencies can come down, look at the work, and hopefully give people jobs, open up the industry a bit more again uh, in different ways. So I'm all for anything that's going to open the industry. I'm there. (laughs) trying to do something getting getting involved putting my big mouth in there so yeah
0: do you have any advice for new talent trying to get established in the industry
1: i think it's harder than it ever was to be honest because i think um you know back when we were doing it you know it wasn't So branding wasn't such a huge thing. It didn't feel like, you know, if you think about all the sort of like young people today, especially with the internet, they really understand and want to work with brands as creators or as creatives or as influence, whatever it might be. That is more new than it was when I was, say, coming up or I was trying to figure out what I was trying to do. Um, But I think the main thing is to show up differently because... There's so much content out there. If I'm looking at something, I want to see your personality. I want to see something that's really unique to you and who you are in your work as well. That's really important for me, at least, is to show what your values are, show what's important to you, and try and make some impact because there's so much of the same out there, be it you know, whether you're established or whether you're new as well. Because a lot of people go, oh, that looks really cool, I'm going to do something similar. The thing about creativity is that it needs to... Be different <laughs> to anyone else's and then that will always rise um, above the avalanche of content we've got out there um, but you know creative directors everywhere should be looking out for new talent not in the usual places um, and that's, that's hopefully how we again start to bring these fresh new ideas uh, coming through but for the talent just try and do something that doesn't look like anything else um, because there's so much content out there that kind of all looks the same
0: So just to finish, final question. Um, What is the biggest challenge right now that you see across the industry? You don't have to come up with the solution, just the challenge, yeah. What's the challenge?
1: Uh, It's going to be the diversity and inclusion. Inclusion part of it. Because we're out here, we're diverse, the world is diverse. It's the inclusion of people um, once they even get into the industry or whether the processes are inclusive enough to get them in and once they're in, for them to progress well internally. So for me the inclusion part of diversity gets forgotten in the D&I area, or I don't see enough of that um, in terms of actual changes happening in that. I think diversity is doing well, um, always can be better um, but the inclusion part and keeping people in the industry is where there's a bit of a struggle still, so that for me is the place uh, where some focus needs to be um, across across the industry. Brilliant,
0: thank you. So You're I've been—it's Fiona Douglas, and I've been speaking to Layla Fatal, founder, CEO, and CSO of Platform Thirteen. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>